0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Stéphane Jetteau to tell us about his book titled Selling Ancestry – Family Directories and the Commodification of Genealogy in 18th Century Britain. The book was published by Oxford University Press in 2023 and studies and takes seriously a type of book that we might see a lot in the historical record, we might even cite for various types of research, but we don't actually notice that much um these directories of families these listings of kind of who's related to who and how and how that changes over time so I was fascinated to read this book that goes hang on a second we've got these documents we do actually you know have decent records of them let's really look at them and see what they're telling us and what we can learn from this examination so Stefan thank you so much for coming on the podcast to tell us about your book
0: well, thank you, Miranda, for having me. And I must say that the uh, new book, networks has been very useful for me and my students, so it's a great opportunity to be here.
1: Wonderful. What a lovely way to start. And to continue, could you please introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book?
0: So I'm a French historian teaching at Sorbonne University, and I've been working on British eyes mostly in the early modern period and on the long 18th century. And my interest in ancestry lies in the fact that in contemporary France, as in many aging societies like the UK or the US, there is an actual obsession about this this subject. In the National Archives, you have countless pensioners working on their genealogies as a hobby, and they can rely on new resources, websites such as myancestry.com, or they can try successful but more problematic methods such as DNA testing. Um, and I think apart from the age factor, one should take into account the intensity of circulation, migration, displacement, which also nourish this thirst for origins and a sense of place. We also know from the public debates that identity politics and the desire for rootedness are expressed on both sides of the political spectrum. Ancestry potentially excludes and includes at the same time. It entails assimilation, segregation, remembrance and censorship. It is conservative as it naturalizes social distinctions but it also relates to the idea of degeneration, inherited flows. So... I think genealogies brings order to the chaotic life of many, and a steady succession of generation placed on a tree provide indeed a very reassuring picture for many. And this contemporary interest is also reflected in historiography. To stick only to the early modern period, there is no remarkable conversion between what family historians are working on, life cycles, kinship, incest, and what social or cultural historians are interested in, status, institution, emotion. And this conversion can be illustrated by two examples. I'm thinking about a stimulating debate about what blood and race meant for early modern families. Was it simply a metaphor to express the idea of lineage, or were they thinking about the effective transmission of moral and physical qualities? Whether it be the Spanish Inquisition, the definition of nobility, or the justification of slavery, historians failed to reach a conclusion on this complex matter. Another example could be drawn from 16th century England and its pedigree fever, which has been explained by the sudden influx of nouveau riche, hoping to join the gentry, the high extinction rates, but also recently, from a religious perspective, The unfinished business of the Anglican Reformation, which disrupts what Alexandra Welsham called in her last book, Generation, the interconnection between age, ancestry, and memory. So, um, ancestry has far-reaching implications as it relates to biological ties, as well as alliances, in-laws, step-parents, and spiritual kinship, godparents, confessional groups. Of a universal nature, ancestry is never set in stone and constantly reconfigured, repackaged to meet new expectation. So it needs to be very closely contextualized. And in my book, I choose a period, the Enlightenment, when uh, values and the promotion of new social groups, middling sort, professionals, seemed at odds with a backward-looking mindset, which is too often associated with ancestry. So it's a subject which has been largely overlooked, I think, by uh, many historians. My methods was to study the apparition and the growing sale of hundreds of family directories published by London Bookseller in the long eighth century. And this publication has been mentioned only in passing by historians, whereas they were at the centre of important entrepreneurial activity. And... Um, I wanted to reconstitute their evolution over time. They became more commercialized and larger in scope. At the beginning of the 18th century, they relate to noble families, only the, the peerage, then titled gentry, called the, the baronets. And then eventually, in the first half of the 19th century, they include large landowners, labeled as commoners, in the first compilation, sold by John Burke in 1832. And most importantly, I tried to probe contemporary attitudes towards social status. And I tried to make sense of the correspondence networks that underpin their publication. These directories were co-edited by the customers themselves. And from their archives, one could gather personal details and long letters, as well as many historical anecdotes. So they left a considerable amount of letters from around 500 families, which have not been studied yet. I asked myself several questions about their relation to the past, their social and gender identities, and the credibility of their claims. By underlying the strong nexus between amateur scholarship and commercial entrepreneurship, I hope to have demonstrated that these publications were significant and influential. They were used not only by the London elites, but by all those who needed the patronage or connection or were interested in their history. And this include a substantial middle class readership. And finally, I was struck by the contrast between the printed narratives, which are well ordained, pastoral in tone, patriarchal, and the messy world accessible through these letters, disclosing many tension within the landed class, between the new and all elite, and also within families themselves.
1: Thank you for that great um, introduction to the book, and especially to kind of the process of creating it and putting all of this together. I certainly found reading it that I was often intrigued by kind of the concept of the archives you had access to, you know, even just that last comparison you just made of the formal, regulated, regimented, in some ways, final products, and then all the letters about all the messiness that went into it, even just that juxtaposition was super cool as a historian to think about. Um, And of course, learning that, I'm like, well, obviously, you have to investigate this I mean who doesn't want to dive into an archive like that so given this wonderful foundation you've given us um, the many different pieces I think we can pick up as we go through let's start I guess at the beginning of the book um because I'd particularly like to ask you about how you open it because you start the book with a quote from Edmund Burke which to me at least made sense given the time period but to be honest, I wasn't really expecting him, of all people, to turn up on page one. So why do you start the book with a quote from him?
0: Yeah, well, thank you, Rhonda. Um, Well, obviously, Burke is famous for his condemnation of the French Revolution, but his views and his history are also interesting. Um, in a pamphlet in uh, 1796, he accused the publisher of family directories of feeding the elite we "quote the milk of human kindness," which is uh, a famous expression drawn from uh, Macbeth. What he meant by this expression that um, his personal enemies in Parliament, namely several several uh, Whig lords, were bedazzled by these compilations, and so far they believe in complacent stories about their ancestor, and by doing so, they became soft, effeminated. Unable to face existential threats posed by the French Revolution. So I, I, I really enjoy this, this expression of milk of humane kindness in a sense that it was then used by other uh, characters who condemned these, these directories for different reasons. And also, Burke, in a rather utilitarian perspective, uh, was not hostile to the principle of genealogy, and quite the contrary. In his previous pamphlets against the French Revolution, he stressed the need for stories about family dynasties in order to defend social distinctions against the levelling principles of the French Republican. So at the turn of the century, he stressed the need to redefine genealogy, not as a self-centred exercise for a small elite, but as a historical tool for the sake of the whole nation. So his his definition of Tradition is really much inspired by by these these ideas about genealogy. And it seems a good starting point to think provocatively about ancestry.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, given that explanation, it definitely does. I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit about the wider context of family directories in this time period. Because, of course, in the connection you made earlier about the present, we know that the search for genealogy and family ties today is influenced by developments in gene technology, is influenced by global displacements that seem ever increasing. It's not happening in a vacuum. And you talk about in the book that reference materials, kind of how books are thought about and used at this time, also is part of the context that helps us understand family directories and where they fit in. So can you tell us a bit about this context? Yes, um,
0: yeah. I think it's, it's. I believe it's really in the eighteenth century that these these books um, gain sort of a wider significance because they just were close to a, a wider consumer and material culture, which which grow especially in the London metropolis. And it's interesting to see that publishers struggle to to come up with a. a a single term for these directories. Sometimes they're called compendium, list, companion, synopsis, account, view, dictionary, biography, history, register. So they're not as such a one common genre. And they're part of a booming market of services and information which cater to the needs of the landed elite and the middle sort and what connected to the process of identification and registration. So they, they feed very much in the um, urban cultural service, which helped thousands of merchants, professional, visiting landowners to navigate their way in London. Family directories were published along many other reference book, trade and town directories, table of interest and fees, roadmaps, parliamentary journal. It's a whole world one should uh, take into account to make sense of, of these, these books. Um, there could be also cross-reference with other books, such as "quote" almanac, travel books, and one publisher, John Fielding, supply in his new pocket peerage in 1782, a uh, London guide plan An index listing the public and private buildings. Well, they were also closely connected to literary gazettes, general history, and even novo- novels and so there there is a very strong complementary of function between all these um publications
1: mm, that that's helpful to understand as we get into some of the details of what's in the publications um and For me, one of the things I always find fascinating about especially the 18th century, it just seems to happen across a lot of different areas of the 18th century, that things change over this time period. And this seems very much the case for representations of ancestry. So can you help us understand what some of the shifts are in representations that we see during this time? Yes. Uh, Indeed, uh, I think
0: among... Family historians, there's been many debates on the, the definition of family in the 18th century, and we no longer accept the the idea of a shift from an extended kinship to a narrow nuclear family with the idea of modernity. But it is true that the representation in itself, ancestry, uh, really changed over a long, a long 18th century. First the material shape of the lineage cultures, meaning the elder male line, uh, changed dramatically. Well, one can see in family estates, they, they were, they're no longer saturated with coat of arms, uh, displaying on mantelpiece or window panes or exuberant funeral monuments. Although, in a recent study, Kate Redford underlined the role of portraits, of family portraits, in preserving a sense of dynastic identity. And similarly, one could argue that these large family computa- compilations, which were placed in libraries adorned with book place, also play a role in the, the preservation of a sort of more traditional lineage culture. Secondly, customers were increasingly in need of accurate disp- depiction of their immediate ancestors. Their great Grandparents and grandparents, but also those of their collaterals. And this is exactly what most trajectories provided. So, by celebrating their deeds in an emotional and personal language, one can see a very significant shift in in this matter. There is a need towards a a closer and more effective form of ancestry. And many families did did not see uh, the point of going beyond three, four generations. And the publisher were only happy to be obliged. So one should be cautious about this notion of shift. Lineage culture was not replaced by a sort of bourgeoisie ancestry, but we could rather talk about a juxtaposition of different sorts of uh, representation. Families used to pick and choose often one remote figure in the Middle Age or in the early modern period, along with a very detailed account of their close ancestors.
1: Hmm. This is good to help us understand. So thank you for taking us through those two shifts. We are, of course, the new books network, and we are, you and I, now talking quite literally about some books. So can you tell us what they're like, the different formats of the family directories, um, the kind of there were, as I understand it, there were different sizes and different kind of levels of fanciness depending on the different ways people were going to use them or the different audiences. So can you explain to us sort of, if we imagine it in our heads, what are these different formats we should be aware of in this genre?
0: Yes, you're, you're perfectly right. They were very different in size and price. And I Just uh, study roughly 130 copulations in order to see the differences. And clearly, it seems to me that they were intended for different categories of readers, which confirmed the the notion of uh, a stratified uh, book market. And I established a kind of raw artificial typology based on three main categories, the pocket size, the octavo and quarto to folio format when it comes for uh, to the uh, pocket size calendar uh, i can see that they became dominant after 16 um, no, 1760 with a sudden rise in the creation of titles by um, george III. the 3rd but the problem is that uh, very few have been preserved as they were mostly recycled as scrap paper they cost one or two shillings and were often Um, equipped with blank pages for the customers to uh, write different um, things. The the prime selling point was to give up an up-to-date snapshot of the landed elite and by supplying synoptic list of titled individuals with a very brief account of their public offices, dignities, ancestors and descent. Most of the data were presented through columns and alphabetical tables. Some also included a crash course on the meaning of coat of arms or in the manner of speaking to social superior or on the way in which letters should be written. The second category, the octavo formats, are often presented as series of historical genealogies. They're more expensive, with longer prefaces, and they often display an educational purpose for the younger generation. Uh, rich with anecdotes and extract from historians, Clarendon, Hume, or Gibbon, and some correspondents describe their crucial importance in their own domestic devotion of the dead. Most of these books are consensual narratives, and they include both Whig and Toys families. In particular, I study the way they refer to intense period of division, the memories of the two first British Revolution and the American and the French revolutions. And the third category, the folio formats, are very different. They're highly expensive, they mostly financed by subscription, and they intended to attract customers from the highest rank of society. Well, the selling point is to insist on their material value, their prominent place in the library, And they're often depicted as golden books of nobility. They usually um, transcribe on precious material, the finest paper, decorated with uh, detailed illuminations. And to give you just a few examples, there's the one published by George Crawford in 1711, which was intended to celebrate the Act of Union and presented as a monument of honor and antiquity. And there is a similar example in in Ireland with Aaron Crowley in 1725. I also noticed that uh, there were massive folios co-financed by George III after 1760. For example, one published by William Guthrie, uh, which is a massive folio with painted family tree and detailed engraving. It seems to me that at this period, these publications were intended to celebrate a reinforced royal prerogative over the bickering factions in Parliament. Very much the idea of a uh, restored chain of being in time of domestic radicalism and colonial challenges.
1: Mm. These three formats are fascinating, I think because they're so different. And of course, as you said, it is something of an artificial typology, but there's still some pretty big differences between those three formats and obviously have indications about what, the people creating them, the publishers, think these will be used for and who will be using them for the different purposes. To what extent, though, were these publishers' expectations? You know, the small, cheap ones would be read by social inferiors. The fancy, shiny ones would be in royal libraries, that kind of thing. To what extent were these expectations actually true with what we can find out in terms of reader preferences and who bought what?
0: Hmm. Yes. Um. There's so much work now on the way readers sort of escape uh, all the intended purpose um, planned by by the publishers. Uh, reader preferences and practices that are more complex and very unpredictable. Um, for example, large folio could be accessible to a larger public than. Uh, estimated through circulating libraries, private loans, or through extract available in cheaper literary gazettes. And I noticed that publishers were actually very vague in setting out their intended target. In their prophecies, they rarely refer to their customers' precise needs, merely alluded to the undefined needs of the public. It's probable that the aim was to avoid being too exclusive so as not to discourage potential buyers from the middle class or too practical to discourage uh, those from the upper end of the market. And another problem was that publishers were confronted to conflicting expectations. Many gentry customers were buying only pocket formats and rejected large folio for being too cumbersome and, and practical, while others complained for the opposite reasons. They felt that their dignity was compromised by alphabetical order, the presence of um, advertisement, or the cheap quality of the paper. And indeed, several publishers were bankrupt for having completely misread the mood of the public by investing in very expensive dictionaries, or uh, alternatively by providing cheap uh, calendar. So the 18th century is really a, a learning process for, for these publishers. And in a sense, it took a century for them to come up with an acceptable balance which could please a large public. And the brands of Dibretz and Burks, in a sense, um, obtained a domin- dominating position on the market for this reason. It's also interesting to see what readers did with their own copies. Many subverted their initial project by adding alternative accounts on the margin. And I work, for example, on a Jacobite family in Paris who rewrite their own ancestry in a very different manner uh, than uh, what was intended by the Protestant publisher. So marginalia are very useful to study this form of agency hijacking by the readers.
1: So I find this really interesting to think about kind of what, publishers want, and as you said, the fact that they are learning as this goes, um, and part of what they seem to be learning from or learning about. are concerns from the public not just about kind of is it shiny enough, is the paper good enough quality, does it fit in my pocket, but also about the contents of these books. So can you explain for us why there seem to be such strong concerns about the credibility of family directories in this period and how or to what extent publishers were able to figure this out and alleviate them? Yes. But it's true that any discourses
0: on ancestry generate suspicions and critical comments, but also its power lies in its very creativity and fictions as well. I guess it's the same tricky question about whether the Greek believed in their own myth or not. During the Renaissance, many uh, humanist authors complained about the incredible genealogies produced in the Middle Ages. But they themselves composed some fanciful pedigrees dating back from the Trojans, and by the same token, in the Enlightenment, genealogies was increasingly seen as problematic by most well-established historians. But this did not prevent them from quoting genealogies themselves. So there's this this very difficult notion of truth and lies, and some authors um, consider that this 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 nexus is very closely related to a social context and to borrow from Stephen Chapin's expression of truth claim in experiment science as in genealogy the participation of the elite is crucial and bring uh, much credibility to these discourses and it is often uh, mentioned in prefaces that Each book has been done with the participation of an elite knowledge network, which uh, is uh, then a key uh, selling um, element, a selling point. Moreover, several compilers who were from humble background, most of them, managed to tap into uh, their knowledge and archives they gather in order to improve their own social status. And sometimes they will come up with uh, like better genealogies from themselves. Some will increase their literary reputation by obtaining a benevolent treatment for various prestigious institutions, such as the College of Arms, the Royal Society, and other antiquarian circles. And others uh, decided in their preface to single out one or two families for their extravagant claims, and by exposing them in public, they would gain a reputation for integrity. So their relation with the customers is not always a relation of domination. They have; they could also have uh, some uh, some leverage on their customers.
1: Mm, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I'd like to. I suppose, take a side step, I guess, into the business aspect of this for a moment, especially given that kind of relational aspect you've just described. Um, because I was quite surprised to read in the book that the copyrights for this information uh, come into play very much here in the publishing world, and that they were held by a really teeny tiny group of publishers, at least from my perception, it seemed pretty small. Can you talk us through a bit kind of what the consequences and the impacts were that this all of this competition was happening amongst such a small circle of publishers? Yes.
0: Um, our 18th century book historians, such famously um, James Raven, have highlighted the, the strength of a very small group of London booksellers uh, nicknamed congers in the city. And they control, indeed, most of the copyrights. Um so in the beginning of the century there were two or three booksellers who were willing to invest in these new kind of directories and then after 1750 the uh, copyright of some very successful publication like um, Arthur Collins Purge were shared by dozens of stakeholders and then later uh, directories after 1820 were owned again by one or two publishers but the value was much higher. For example, the copyrights of Burke's Peerage and Barentage, owned by Henry Colburn, reached five thousand pounds. So, in a sense, the domination of a small group of publishers um, presented many advantages for them. First, uh, there was the uh, the idea of uh, risk risk sharing. I, I alluded b- before to really the. The risk and the dangers of being um, of losing money on, on those this kind of product. Secondly, the collective ownership allowed da- data to be easily transformed and to migrate migrate from more expensive formats to more accessible supports, such as literary journal and pocketbooks. And uh, for example, the the gentleman's magazine became a gateway between expensive volumes and reference books. And third. Through their shops and their extended sales networks in Britain and throughout the empire, publishers were in position to distribute their publication to a much wider audience than previously assumed. The growth of their circulating and local libraries, whose catalog contained both cheap and costly directories, play also a crucial role. Hmm. Good
1: to know, um, because I'd like to turn to kind of the results of this, right? The business works to a degree that the circulation is all over the place. There are multiple different form factors to engage with this information. Um, And readers did engage with it, perhaps in ways we don't necessarily fully give credit to, right? We have this idea often that reading is kind of to a degree passive and you take in information and that's sort of all there is to it. Of course, scholars of reading go into a lot more detail, but I think the rest of us still sometimes incorrectly um, have that conception. But you've already hinted at earlier with the example of the Jacobite family sort of writing an alternative history in the margins of the published book. And you discuss in the book that there this isn't a one-off. There are other instances of subversive aspects to this, comical reactions to this. So can you take us through kind of maybe some of the reactions um, or the less than exactly straightforward ways that this information either got put together or received?
0: Yes, it's mean, so true that genealogies have got the repetition to be particularly dull and dry but they were also very likely to be mocked and ridiculed and there's a very strong comical potential in, in genealogies especially those organised around a vertical and lineage structure uh, because this this structure was done by evicting a considerable part of the family, and so it was seen by contemporaries as unfair or selfish. And for example, if you think about Joseph Addison in his widely read Spectator, he was making fun of the old-fashioned squire lost in his parchment and pedigrees. It was a comical contrast between his isolation and the ghost of hundreds of ancestors. He was thinking um, uh, by. Um, doing his, his genealogy. Uh, there are also many jokes about the fact that um, hundreds of bastards and illegitimate, illegitimate children uh, were hidden away in these um, uh, lineage uh, genealogies. Famously, William Hogarth um, in Le mariage à la mode, ridiculed an impoverished and gouty aristocrat who was brandishing a pedigree while in the background of the portrait, one can see his dilapidated dilapidated mention. So the tree of Jesse in particular were used to mock various courtiers in the 18th century, such as Lord Bute or John Rawl, MP for Devon in the um, 1780s. And the tree of Jesse um, are used initially for the family of Christ, but they also use as powerful caricatures. In the case of John Rawl, he is depicted and ridiculed as a knight from the Norman invasion, and the parody rely on the contrast between his alleged glorious ancestor at the bottom of the tree and his parents in the higher branches, one being simply very tall, another very fat, and his mother, Dorothy, whose main deed was to have died of dysentery. And so many... Commentators um, were sort of scared of the comical potential of, of these genealogies. One complained that, quote, a knight with his arm blazing on his coat, if uh, seen as present as a hero in a puppet show. Um, another uh, comical aspect of, of these, in, uh, these this, um, the subject, um, sort of the byproduct of genealogical inquiries which revealed many accounts of uh, adulteries, ridiculous deaths, and, and so on. In the first part of the 18th century, we, we compilers inserted various family scandals to discredit Tory grandees. For example, this Seymour, the fifth Duke of Somerset in 17th century, which had been fought, uh, shot dead in a Italian eel in by a jealous husband and This was then done on a larger scale by radical writers after uh, 1760, who published fake directories illustrating the corruption and sleaze of the political order. And so this contributed to a rise of public debate about the elite and their moral shortcomings. I'm thinking, for example, of uh, Frederick Barlow, who published several um, directories, um, and he said that he was willing to put aside the uh, Amin to show the corruption which lies hidden behind. Uh, there's also Charles Coleman, a satirical peerage of England, and uh, his many puns, puns on his mottoes. For example, the Earl's Derby, uh, sans changer, which means I don't change, attracted the following comments, constant indeed, let's hear no more, you changed your wife and took a whore. So many puns and jokes about these these, um, genealogies. Uh, In the comedy The New Peerage by Harriet Lee, there's also the character of Lord Melville who complained that memoirs of Peer were sold in London, quote, for the amusement of his footman.
1: (laughs) Well, comic potential indeed. Given then the multiple sort of difficulties in putting this together, as you said, right at the beginning of that answer, the idea of, Parts of families being left out. If you're going to only follow, for example, the eldest man in each generation, siblings get cut off pretty quickly. Um, There's obviously some questions there about gender. Do daughters get included, for example, even if they marry outside the family? Um, And then, of course, the more uh, available for satire, the bastards, the illegitimate, the multiple wives, etc. So to what extent, did the families whose ancestries were being included participate in the creation of these compilations? And do we see any sort of commonalities in terms of like, these types of families did get involved, those types of families refused to get involved, the people within the families, it was always like, this kind of person versus that kind of person? Can we Say anything about sort of the extent to which, or the ways in which, that families participated in the creation? Yes. Um, so I
0: dedicated two chapters to this to this question. The, the, the one, the first part was just to trying to identify which kind of families were involved in in these directories, and the second part is more about the internal dynamic within these families who will be um, able to hold the pen who, who will be responsible for the narrative? Um, first for, for just to, to provide a kind of a prosopography of the family involved in these in these operations. Um, it's interesting to see that um, in the prefaces, publishers always mention family participation. It was indeed a, a key selling point as I say earlier. And so I have to, to try to, to find a few examples, a few case studies. And I would like here to speak only about three cases, uh, one in 1740, another one in 1800, and, and in 1828. So they, they were three directories, and I picked those ones because they generated a significant amount of correspondence, which is accessible for us. It's interesting to see that this correspondence reflect the political claim, the attitude of this family to social mobility, and also the way they justify their uh, participation. So I had to create a sort of database with all the customers, their name, their age, place of residence, public position. And it turned out that most of them never act in isolation. For each publication, I can see a very distinctive groupings of family. Just very quickly, uh, the directory related to the year 1740, I have found that the majority of correspondents were at odds with the government. There were mostly families in counties such as Oxford, Yorkshire, Norfolk, who has been distinguished during the Restoration, but they were somehow marginalized during the, at the beginning of the uh, an Ovarian uh, time. And why they were eager to mention their ancestors' deeds during the First Revolution in 1640, they refused to talk about the Great Revolution uh, in 1688. And it is possible that some were sort of crypto-Jacobites or others fear the possibility of a Jacobite coup. The second sample in 1800 relates to very different families. They were recent families elevated by Pitt the Younger during the Revolutionary War. Many were from Irish or Scottish descent and were involved in the preparation of the Irish Act of Union and were hopeful to integrate a new British aristocracy. My sample related to 1828 is probably more heavenly distributed around the country and regroup the well-established gentry, many merchants, colonial traders, manufacturers, so a um, larger social uh, gamut, and also a few celebrities like uh, David Ricardo. And again, the participation of these families are very closely linked to national politics, and in this case, the debate about the great uh, reform bills and apart from these few generalities there was key rational for the there was another key rational which was the the role of neighboring ties and for for example i work on a network of families around leeds and their concerted effort to answer the london publishers at the same time for for, for them the main commonality was not only the quest for prominent ancestors but rather to display their close alliances and also the strengths of their local standing. And I studied another cluster um, which revolved uh, around the um, East India Company. Uh, also, the slave trade interest is very strong in the late 18th century. And in this case, Creole absentees were sort of obliged to reconfigure their identity to fit uh, with the cultural framework of their mother, mother country.
1: Hmm. So there's a clear sense then, um, as you said, of the importance of social ties and social networks and relationships in determining kind of what kinds of families are in some ways co-creating or at least providing information for the publishers. What about then within the families? Do we see similar sort of relations and social networks there or is it kind of the publisher reaches out to, I don't know, the oldest man or something and says here, give me the information. And he talks to his buddies outside the family. What what do we see about involvement if we look for within families?
0: Yes. So precisely, these the, letters are very precious because you, if you stick only to the printed version, you have, as one could expect, a celebration of patriarchy. And the publishers directed the inquiries always towards the head of the family as he was considered as the, the prime heir to the title and the guardian of the, uh, of the family archives. However, in my database, uh, I just look for the position of each correspondence within her or his own family, and it, it seems that many letters reveal a much diverse and complex vision of family life. Cadets, uncles, cousins play actually a great part in the data gathering and in the correspondence. Cadets, uh, so the younger brothers in particular, were more likely to become professional than to inherit land and works as lawyers or reverence. They had access to many public archives and display superior writing skills than their elder brothers. By the same token, women as wives, daughters, sisters, aunts, play a significant role even though their contribution in the printed version uh, was not acknowledged or sometimes was even derided. I like the case of ethereal Bennett, which was the younger sister of John Bennett, MP for Wiltshire, and she was the great-granddaughter of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And in a letter to John Burke in 1828, she introduced herself as the family genealogist and provided a very detailed account of the Bennetts in the 16th century. And she was much involved in various grand-scale antiquarian enterprise and was also a renowned ge- geologist and fos- fossil corrector. She established some very interesting comparison between the multi-layers of time and of rocks And despite all she communicated to Burke, she had only her first name mentioned uh, in in the um, the publication. So her case demonstrates that the problematic opposition between a masculine intellectual knowledge network and a feminist interest in in family history, this dichotomy uh, doesn't seem to work in practice. we can see that in many cases, family members agree to cooperate with one another in order to send the best accounts, which shows that's the fate of most families depending on a high level of negotiation uh, between the head of the household and the other members. But sometimes letters reveal very bitter arguments between eldest son and their sibling or between stepmothers and children of the first union when notably they failed to agree on a consensual narratives, and then so the public the publisher were forced to act as referee to competitive view of the ancestor and it's not always the elder brothers uh, view which triumph and some of these family feuds uh, even uh, led to legal cases notably in case of inheritance um, problems hence one can say that genealogies could be seen as ego documents, which offer some insight into the solidarities, the emotional bonds, as well as deeper rivalries within families. It could be used as a barometer of individual and collective anxiety in f- families, as well as in the uh, British society as a whole.
1: Hmm. What a great way to sum up so many aspects of your book and, of course, also the books that you are investigating. Um, And I think you've definitely proved that these books are much more interesting than perhaps many of us have assumed. So thank you very much for taking us through that and leaving me really with only my final question. Um, This book is now done. It's out in the world. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to highlight for us?
0: Yes, I think uh, everyone has got, um, sort of, when writing a book, regrets about what could be done, what hasn't been done properly. And and I think it would be useful to work more on the, um, the publication, publication rates in Scotland and Ireland. And this is quite challenging but uh, I think it would be worth um, working more on, on, on these um, parts of the of the um, United Kingdom and, and on Ireland. And also, it would be worth establishing closer parallel with European countries um, on the larger scale between the 17th century and 19th century, maybe to avoid the idea of British social exceptionalism, which is still quite strong in, in, in many books. And this is why I, I pick uh, Francisco de Goya, Donkeys, uh, for the, the cover of my, of my book, because it's an invitation to think further from a European perspective. The the legend of this, this famous engraving is a poor animal turned crazy by genealogists. And I think Goya, in the late 18th century, have alluded to the rather strange and fantastic effect this family copulation may have had on some customers. And it would be good to just study how they were received in Italy, France, in Germany, also, and which kind of questions they raise. Uh, for that matter, but quotation, we discussed earlier on, uh, fits into a widespread European debate. Uh, in all European countries, there was the the the, deep, the need to better accommodate the old-fashioned memories of noble family to the requirements of a more inclusive national narrative in the late eighteenth century. Um, and I think it would be interesting to work on the transfer of models and practices from one country to another. It seems that European publishers were imitating each other. For example, between France and the that there, there's plenty of evidence which... Make the case for an intense circulations. It seems at first that in the seventeenth century, London publishers and antiquarians such as Thomas Miles or William Dugdale were inspired by French compilations. In the late seventeenth century, Huguenots, who settled in the British Isles, also contributed to this transfer of antiquarian methods. But with the Hanoverian King, one can see that German calendars were introduced in London notably the Almanac of Gotha, um, which was a very different in, in, uh, in, in the way family data was organized. Uh, alternatively, the strong presence of Jacobites in 18th century France and Spain led to the translation of various British directories. And we have s- several Parisian publishers, such as La Cheney, who sold calendars of nobility, which were very strongly inspired by London standards. And also there is this challenge posed by the Atlantic revolutions and more than generally the role of colonial elites, in what way they uh, intervene to suggest a new definition of honor and ancestry.
1: All right. Well, that sounds fascinating. So we'll have to have you back once you've done those many investigations. Um, But of course, in the meantime, while you're investigating those many ties, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Selling Ancestry, Family Directories and the Commodification of Genealogy in 18th Century Britain, published by Oxford University Press. Stefan, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you, Miranda, for these great questions.